Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. In the name of him who has shown us that and been that for us, amen. Ben Franklin. Heard of him? Maybe? Author, polymath, inventor, statesman, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, the first postmaster general we deliver for you. He was that first guy. He came up with that. If you know parts of his story, and there's a wonderful little uh, summary statement by one of his biographers, Walter Isaacson, in the sermon resource page today. By his telling, when old Ben was young Ben, uh, young Ben's dad thought, you should be a minister. So we sent him to Harvard, or was going to send him to Harvard to be a minister. And then after a while, we kind of discovered that the, the kind of snark uh, and other interests that young Ben exhibited, dad said, maybe not a good use of my money for his education. So that was a no, hard no on that one, hard pass. You know Benjamin Franklin mostly because he's one of the architects of what some like to call the American experiment. And what he came to discover was that, and what he was part of, was that more, that that American experiment was more than just building a society that didn't have a monarchy as its structure. It was more than just a society that was a government that it was of, by, and for the people. Ben Franklin, by Walter Isaacson's telling, will say, he realized that to build a new society, you would have to build a middle class that embodied and embraced a certain set of virtues. And that whatever government or culture you could create, it needed to help cultivate those virtues in that middle class. Otherwise, your society would would deteriorate from within. And so Ben Franklin comes up with his own 12 virtues, 12 virtues, and they're very thoughtful. Here, here's a, here's a, a sampling of the first three. Temperance, eat not to dullness, drink not to elevation. Silence, <laughs> uh, silence, speak not, the first one certainly helps the second, right? Silence, speak not but what may benefit others or yourself, avoid trifling conversation. Three, order, let all your things have their places, let each part of your business have its time. He comes up with 12, and uh, you can see the link to that stuff also in the Sermon Resources page. And it was very thoughtful, and he had all sorts of ideas. And not only did he think that a society needed to embrace that, but he said, before they would, I'm going to have to try myself. So he did. He took it upon himself to take these 12 virtues that he thought was the the backbone of any culture, and he said, you know what? I'm going to try to practice it myself. I'm going to focus on one each week and track myself. How am I doing? And he actually had a chart. And this is one of his charts. And every week... He would look at these 12 virtues, and he would, on Monday, he would mark, he would put a mark wherever he thought he failed it that day. So apparently, on Monday, the silence one didn't work out. And it, for that matter, all sorts of things, order, whatever. It just, it was a problem. And at some point, he moved the, the chart onto a slate, on a chalkboard slate, and he would have a chalk mark. And he would, every day he failed, he would mark that off. And so when a week went well, he would say, look, a clean slate. Oh, that's where it came from. I had to verify that with Russ Burrell this morning. He said, that's true. So it is. That's his thing. He he takes his 12 virtues, and he shows it to a Quaker friend of his. And his Quaker friend said, you should add a 13th. And, And Ben Franklin said, which? And he said, humility, because you don't have any. So he comes up with a 13th, 
And here it was, humility, imitate Jesus and Socrates. That was his instruction, imitate Jesus and Socrates. Okay, we look at that and we go, wow, interesting. He practiced, he sought to practice those virtues, internalize them himself, and he did it for a while. And after a while he said, I'm not very good at this. In fact, it's not going very well, but it was not in vain. Such that, as he says in his biography, a speckled axe is best. A benevolent man should allow a few faults in himself to keep his friends in countenance. <laughs> I wouldn't want anybody to look, you know, I wouldn't want to look down on any of my friends being superior, you know, having a virtuous superiority over them. Cute, right? Fascinating. Commendable. At one level, it's commendable. Here is someone who realizes that virtue is essential, not only for the human heart, but for a whole people. And he sought to practice that. And the rhetorical question that all of us should be asking ourselves right now is, if you're a Christian, how do you think about this approach? Do we have a problem with us embracing the ideas of virtue? Of course not. In that sense, there's overlap. We're going to be talking this morning about a very famous passage that speaks about the Holy Spirit. Because we've been asking ourselves the question for many weeks now, what does it really mean to believe in the Holy Spirit besides just reciting it in the creed or singing it in our songs or praying it in our prayers? What does it mean to believe that? Because in the passage, passage we're looking at this morning, we're going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, which is not a coconut, it is not a watermelon, it is not a mango, it is many things, but it is one thing also. And what we hear in the fruit of the Spirit has a great deal of overlap between what Ben Franklin has to say about virtue. But here's the question. Inasmuch as it was good for him to pursue that, there is a big difference between his approach and the approach of one who says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Big differences in terms of motive and in manner. We want to get to the heart of that. And I think we'll get to the heart of that by trying to unpack one verse in the passage we're looking at. It's what he says in verse 26. If We live by the Spirit. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. I mean, in this passage alone, he uses all sorts of words. Led by, walk by, led by, keep in step with. What is it all getting at? This is it. This is the focus. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That's what we want to do. Ask two questions. What does it mean to live by the Spirit? And in turn then, what does it mean to keep in step with the Spirit? That's where we're going. We're in Galatians chapter 5. We're going to kind of hit some highlights there, and we're going to try to unpack that question. So I wonder if you would stand. We'll get busy. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and then skipping down to 13. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Hmm. 
But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. <clears throat> it's a mouthful. And we're a little bit of a disadvantage because we have parachuted in to the downhill slide of his whole letter. So just for the sake of understanding where he's coming from, let's, let's see if we can surface a little bit of context here. Uh, Paul had planted this church in, in Galatia, which is what is now modern-day Turkey. He had seen, he had introduced the gospel to them. He'd seen it take hold in them. And now, however, he has caught wind that other notions have begun to enter into their world. They're hearing from others who are also speaking about Jesus and also operating under the idea of what the gospel is, but they're different from what Paul has said. And what they're sharing about Jesus and the gospel is fundamentally at odds with the nature of what he's told them. You ever play the game of telephone, right? You, you have 10 people in a circle and one person says, he starts out with, the pearl is in the river, right? And then it goes all the way around and by the time it gets to the last person, you hear somebody say, the lint is in the navel, right? Um, <laughs> like fundamentally has changed, right? And that's funny, and that's cute because it's a game. But Paul has said, this is no game. That what you have come to hear and come to begin to entertain and countenance could not be further from the truth. You are hearing some people walk into your midst and say, Jesus is Lord. And you go, I've heard that from Paul before. And you've also heard some people walk in here and say, Jesus was risen from the dead. And they're thinking, we heard that from Paul also. But now what you're hearing some people say is this. The way you have the favor of God and the way you maintain that favor is that you must embrace the entirety of the law, including all the laws about circumcision, all of the laws about the dietary restrictions, the whole kit and caboodle. That's on you. That is no longer off the table. It is on the table. And if you're not aware of that, and if you discard that, you have no confidence that you are his. That is Paul's burden to address. If you forsake any of that, they, they are being told you will lose something profound. And therefore, Paul is pulling his hair out because he thought they got it. And he's pulling all the hair out because now even his buddy Peter has heard enough of that and thinking, yeah, maybe they're right. And so the thrust of Paul's letter, what's got him, what's got a bee in his bonnet, and rightly so, he has got to come after them and pull them back from the brink 
Because what he has told him is this. The gospel is news. It is what God has done for you. Full stop. No qualifiers. No caveats. But what they are now hearing and they're beginning to embrace is that the gospel is no longer just news. The gospel is a bar that you must reach. It's on you to get there. And if you don't, your belovedness and your belonging is in question. He's come for them. He's come to set them straight. He's come to pull them back from the brink. And the one word that kind of helps him try to cleanse their palate, cleanse their spiritual palate of what they're hearing, is that if you understand the gospel, you understand one word really clearly, and it's the word freedom. In the gospel, there is freedom. So you heard it say in verse 1, for Christ has set us free, for freedom Christ has set us free. And then in verse 13, for you are called to freedom, brethren. And this is one of nine or ten times he's going to use the word free or freedom to get his point across. And I'm arguing to you that first of all, to understand what it means to live by the Spirit is to learn how to rest in a sense of what this freedom is. Freedom both from some things, but freedom also for something. And we want to dig into that. Living by the Spirit means you don't just sort of collect and it, the idea of freedom clicks. It's like you find comfort in that freedom. So let's talk about it. Freedom from what? I think you could distill it down really briefly into three things. First, it's freedom from the condemnation of the law. Uh, kids, you went to school this week, you go to school next week, you might have gotten this thing called a syllabus. What is a syllabus? It's telling you what you're gonna out to learn, what the teacher is out to help you master. That syllabus also tells you what? What is expected of you. If you do this, you'll get this. If you don't do this, you'll get this. That's a syllabus. It's an outline of expectation. When it comes to the law of God, there are some big similarities between what you did in school this week or next week and what the law is saying. The law has come to give you an outline of the character of God, an outline of the holiness of God. It is the summary statement of what he calls from anybody that is made in his image. In other words, everybody. And the law is kind of like walking into a bathroom in a cheap motel with fluorescent lighting. What does fluorescent lighting do? You walk in there, you flip on the lights, you see perfectly every single blemish on your face, wherever. It's, it's just there. And you can't mask it, you can't hide it, you gotta look away from it if you don't like looking at it. That's what the law does. The law is like a fluorescent light that exposes every blemish. It shows everything that we're doing that's off. That's a, a divergence from his character. That's a variation on his holiness. It shows that. It shows our deeds in that light. But it's also more than just like a fluorescent light. It's like a spiritual MRI. It gets beneath the surface that you can't see. And it does more than just expose the deeds or the failures at behavior in terms of the holiness of God. It gets down into the depths of your motives and the character of your heart and the corruption of your own being which contributes to your whole sense of how badly this is going, how far you are from the very character of God, what that corruption looks like, and how we might summarize that as the nature of an estrangement. 
I don't want you. I don't need you. I will not be like you because I don't trust you. That's estrangement. There is a curse. What you're free from in the gospel is freedom from the condemnation of the law. Listen to what he says in chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. All the things that the law is rightly enabled to hold against you, that's lifted. By his life, his death, his resurrection, the law does not hold that against you because Jesus takes upon himself that condemnation. He lifts the curse. It's part of your freedom. It's not the only part of your freedom. It's a big part of your freedom. It also is a freedom from what Paul will call the imprisonment and guardianship of the law. Now, we're getting kind of thick in the weeds here. Let me read the passage that that idea is based on. It's, it's also in chapter 3. He says this, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Okay. Uh, simplest idea here, he's, he's painting a contrast. The guardianship of the law, faith in Jesus. It's a contrast. He's not pitting them against each other as if they are not interested in the same goal. It's not a battle between them. What he's saying there is nothing more than what we haven't already said in recent weeks from what Paul says in Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. God, let's see, for, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What is of the law is an outline of, the, is an outline of his character. It points us. It explains to us what is the holiness of God, but it can't create in us what it asks of us. What does a nanny do? A nanny watches after you. A nanny makes sure you don't put the knife in the you know, outlet. Uh, a nanny makes sure you don't put your hand down the disposal. All of those things that are good and helpful and beneficial and protective, but they can't make you virtuous. They can't get you to both love and embrace what is good. It's not within their control. The law, in that sense, is like a guardian. It's like a nanny. It can point you. It can explain to you. It can't make in you what it wants from you, what the law is asking of us, what the Lord is asking of us. And in that sense, it's a frustration. Remember when uh, Brad stood up here several weeks ago and talked us through Romans 7 and how Paul talks about the law? You know, the law is good. It's holy. It's masterful. And in that sense, it's great. We're not dumping on the law here. But every time the law starts saying, look, in Paul's words, don't covet. Uh, what is it about us? But something wells up in us that says, don't covet? Mm, I think I'll covet. You drew a line. You put a boundary. I know it's in me. Tell you what, I've got this. The nature of the law is to expose but given what we are in our flesh, it's kind of like, I'll give the stiff arm. And that's a frustration. Because what it's asking, it can't get to me. Living by the Spirit is freedom from that frustration. How? Because in Jesus, it is putting our moral motivations 
in a different place and for a different purpose. It's not like obedience is off the table when it comes to the gospel. It's not like Jesus doesn't say, you know, do whatever you want. It's fine. You know, I'm good. Love you. Do whatever you want. You and I, in too many ways, turn obedience in the way to rescue ourselves. We turn obedience in a way to secure something from him. Father uh, Robert Farrar Capon said this, I said grace cannot prevail until the law is dead, until moralizing is out of the game. The precise phrase should be, until our fatal love affair with the law is over, until finally and for good our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. I think that's where I stopped. He is arguing, insofar as you continue to believe that if I just do the right thing, maybe he'll love me then, you have put the law and obedience in a place that it was never intended to be. Jesus has freed us from the frustration of what the law creates in us by helping us to see that we are his because of him. You and I can use the law or obedience to it as if we think, if we'll just do that, we will win him over. Friends, we've already won it. He's already won over by what his son has done. Can anybody look at the cross and think, yeah, I probably, if I could just do the right thing, that'll win him over. Can you really stare at that and think that, that was his plan? And that gets me to the third point about what it means to say, what, what is this freedom from? And it's almost the thing that I most want to say because... I'll be honest, uh, I don't think you've lost much sleep in the last several nights about whether you've been obedient to the law, uh, especially about circumcision or dietary laws. I, um, I don't think you got up this morning and had two pieces of bacon and went, <gasps> and I, I, that's fine. But I would argue, uh, even if you're not uh, fastidiously uh, concerned with everything that you find in the Mosaic Law or anything about God's character that's expressed in Scripture, I would argue that there is something in your life that deeply resonates with the very thing that you've been freed from. And that is creating your own set of laws by which you determine whether or not you're good. You know, the whole gold star demerit there from School of Rock. Your educational system is just one way in which you create a law for yourself that if you win it, you are good. And if you fail it, you are dark. Black spot, Wemix, right? Remember that one? What we've been freed from most of all is what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He's talking about Mosaic law. He's talking about the holiness of God. I'm telling you, even if you don't think about circumcision or the dietary laws, you're creating laws for yourself all the time. Laws that you've inherited from your parents or from your culture or from your social media, whatever it might be. And you're either failing it or winning it probably by your own rationalization. And you think your path to goodness and stability and belovedness and belonging rests on that. It's just your law. You've created a new one. Uh, maybe some of you have read this book by David Zoll called Seculosity. We talked about it four years ago. I looked it up. And the whole premise of the book is, people thought that if we can just get rid of God, we can get rid of guilt. 
because we can no longer worry about whether or not we're good enough anymore. And the, the premise of the book is, how's that going? The world, in many ways, has said, you know, I really don't need God. I'm moving on from God because I just don't want to live under that guilt, right? Well, congratulations. You've just found something else that gives you reasons to feel guilty. You may not be worried about whether you ate bacon this morning, but in his own words, he said this, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to the anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some benchmark in our minds, then value, vindication, and love would be ours. That if we got enough, we would be enough. That we would be enough. It's more than a film, friends. I said it last week. Where I want to know if we're enough, and we're all haunted by the fact that we're not. Jesus has come to keep us from relying upon the law to make us justified in the sight of the Lord, not only by what we find in the Mosaic law, but by every other law that you've adopted yourself and you just didn't know it. And yet you can't go to sleep at night because you think you failed it. That's what we've been freed from. If, can I show you that? Can I show what that looks like? It's an extreme way of putting it, but I, I think it really works. I've shown it to you before, but it's been several years since I have. There's an episode of Black Mirror in which you're about to see Bryce Dallas Howard walk around, and it's a world in which everybody is trying to get this awesome social credit score. And the way they do that is they rate everybody and everything that they do with their phones about everything, and then they get like these coaches that talk about, well, you'll just see. Imagine this world that you will look at it and you'll go, what a bizarre dystopian future, and I'll just suggest to you that probably it is more real and more at work in our world than you would want to admit. And that's one brush sweep. You want a cookie with that? It's on the house. Sounds awesome. <laughs> See you tomorrow, Toy Terry. See you, Lacey. <laughs> oh, saw your boy in the fire hat just now. So cute. Yeah, he's really something. <laughs> if we drill down into the numbers, you have got a solid popularity arc here. Strong overall trajectory. Let's just look at the last 24 hours. You see, even... What's that? 8.40 a.m. You're working hard on your socials. Great little uptake there. Okay. A couple of minor dings there. You cut someone off in traffic. Oh, just a workplace thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's check on your sphere of influence. Let me zoom out here. Great peripherals. Strangers like you. That's a plus. Healthy inner circle. It's good. Thank you. <laughs> There's a ways to go, but 4.5, certainly achievable. 
Most of your interactions are confined to your inner circle, and they're largely, pardon the term, mid to low range folks. Same with your outer circle. You've got a ton of reciprocal five stars from service industry workers, but uh, there's not much else, at least as far as I can see. So in terms of quality, you could use a punch-up right there. Ideally, that's upvotes from quality people. Quality people? Mm, I fours. Impress those upscale folks, you'll gain velocity on your arc, and there's your boost. Outlandish. Oh, how true is that, the way we think? I mean, isn't the music underneath it perfect? It's like, you know, music you play, I don't know, out of wake. It's what it is. You're stepping into death, the way in which you make every move uh, a measure of your goodness, of your okayness, and every transaction that you have with everybody else is all got one thing in mind, you. What a tyranny. Who wants that? Look, if you're here today and you, don't, and you think, I respect Jesus, I don't have faith in him, like, this doesn't prove that he's right or that he was risen from the dead, but I'm just saying, wouldn't you want to live in a different world in which your belovedness had nothing to do with all that? I do, and I slip into that too. That's what we've been freed from from trying to rely on some sort of law that we think, well, we need a life coach to kind of show us how you get there. <sighs> Living by the Spirit is being able to rest in a different world with a different language. And when you're freed from that, you might be led to believe that the Lord has no interest in anything for you, that <clears throat> once you've kind of realized that you don't have anything to prove to him, and that there was nothing in you that would warrant him being, you would being beloved by him, that maybe you would think, well, then why would I want any more of God? Like, that's covered. Why would, I, like, why would I need more of that? However, I would argue that when you understand that, you understand that you've been freed for something. And so you hear him say in chapter 5, verse 13, you were called to freedom, but just don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You've been freed from that. You've been freed from condemnation. You've been freed from believing that you have to prove something. And the Spirit is the one to help you rest in that and believe in that. That's what it means to live by the Spirit. But rather than desire God less, now when that becomes true and you rest in that, now you desire him more. You desire what he desires. And here's where we pivot to the downhill slide of this flight. If that's what it means to live by the Spirit, what does it mean to live or to keep in step with the Spirit? Where does it go in light of that? Keeping in step, that's not you know, a complicated, opaque term. It's being on the same page. It's being in harmony. It's kind of like, I'm going to dance with you, and we're going to dance this night away. That's what being in step with the Spirit is. It is, it is desiring what the Spirit desires for you. That's it. And the first thing that Paul tells us about that is that any keeping in step with the Spirit is something no less than a battle. Last week we talked about how we argued that life in the Spirit is, um, 
It's a fight to follow Jesus. Uh, I wish I could tell you it's all wine and roses and cheer. It's never that way. It's frequently hard. You frequently don't want to. This is a battle. And perhaps the most thorny or difficult passage to understand is what he means by uh, they're about the, the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the desires of the flesh and that's the way it is so that you cannot do what you want to do. What is he getting at that? Here's, here's the best level argument that I can find in people that know more about this passage than I do. It's this. There's no switch that you turn off the desires of the flesh. I wish there was. It just, like, I keep looking, I never find it. That fuse is busted. You can't. You can't just sort of turn it off. By the same token, I wish that the desires of the Spirit were like, well, I'll just see it and automatically believe it and walk in it. I can't just automatically adopt that any more than I can automatically avoid what is the desires of the flesh. So I'm stuck. I need help. And in that battle, like every good battle, there's a fog. You've heard the phrase, there's the fog of war. Stuff starts happening, people start firing, bada, 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 and you can't see anymore. You don't know what decisions to make. That's the fog of war. And in the fog of war, when it comes to the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, what you can't see is what's true about the desires of the flesh. I encourage you to go home this afternoon and read that very long list of the desires of the flesh. I mean, come on. Uh, where is it? Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, just all of that. Like, wow. Like, that's, like, that's the whole plot line of Game of Thrones. That's it, right there. Throw that all in there, and we have got an episode. That's it. Um, like, if they don't have that, there is no show. And if you, but if you look at that, you can find that there's three commonalities between everything in that list. And, and, and Paul is not just saying, look at that list. No, stop, run. He's not saying that. If you just study that list long enough, you realize that three things are in common about it. One, every action there in that list is self-centered. Every single one. It is all about you. And some of you think, yeah, so? I kind of like me. What's wrong with that? I do too. I like, I like you too. But I like me more. <laughs> so what's wrong with self-centeredness? I'll tell you. If you make yourself the center of your attention, you are asking to fill a hole that will never be filled. You can't. You will exhaust yourself. Or worse. You make that the sum total of your substance, your existence, it's, it's an unfillable hole. There's a, there's a wonderful song by Bob Frankie who uh, in the chorus says, uh, um, there's a hole in the middle of a pretty good life. I only face it because it's here to stay. Not my father, nor my mother, nor my daughter, nor my lover, nor the highway made it go away. You make yourself the center you're having to face a hole that's there, and if you think, I've got to fill that, I'm sorry. Not, there is no, there's no filling of it. Not, not lastingly. Every one of those things in that list of desires of the flesh has the self at the center of it. It's destructive, whether to yourself or to others. And to put a really icy period on that one, it's also destined for its own annihilation. Those who make these habitually part of their life, will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, it will not last. It's not part of the future kingdom, so you ought to just sort of let go of it soon. That's what the desires of the flesh are. It creates chaos in all things, and it's destined for annihilation. And the Spirit is the one that helps you to see the truth of that. 
even when you refuse to see it. And when casting that off, it then gives you new desires. Desires that are what he calls fruit. And Paul is very tactical, very strategic, very intentional about why he chooses the word fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Because you can't create it. You can't produce it. We planted things in our backyard. We watered things in our backyard. And then we waited. And it's been a harvest like no other. And we did very little, which is pretty clear about how it works. I can't make it fruit. I can't make these lovely tomatoes fruit on their own. That's, all I can do is to create the conditions in which that might be possible. This is the nature of the fruit of the Spirit. It is unnatural. It is comprehensive. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. I mean, that applies everywhere. It is comprehensive and it is interdependent. There's no such thing as love being present but patience on the back burner. Like, those two things have to go together. Gentleness will always be with self-control. There's no such thing as not being self-controlled and being gentle. It's the nature of the fruit of the Spirit. And in direct opposition to what you know about the desires of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit doesn't have you at the center anymore. It has the Lord and other people. All of those. Talk about them. It's all about social. It's all about how you exist in community. It doesn't have you at the center. It's eminently and foundationally a creative life. And it's also destined to last forever. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. And the fruit of the Spirit is so crucial that we're going to now spend several weeks talking about one or more of the section of the fruit because we believe it's so crucial to our understanding of what it means to be his and what it means to be his in the world. It's crucial in that distinction. It's also crucial to the point that you were encouraged to do there by Veach during the announcements. We're about to ask you, if you're a member of this church, to nominate elders, deacons, and deaconesses. And you might think that's a really challenging task. What do I do? This is, here's part of it. Who do you see around here who's a member of our body that exhibits the fruit of the Spirit? Not perfectly, but aspiringly so. And who you could entirely imagine them desiring that this church embody the fruit of the Spirit even more. That's who you prayerfully consider and nominate. I'm asking you to do that if you need a little guidance. That's why it matters. All right. Where does this end? It ends here. We started with Ben Franklin. And Ben Franklin is of use to us and is helpful to us because he demonstrated a commitment to virtue. He valued it. He wanted to see others cultivated in it. And he was honest enough to see where his shortcomings were. On that count, we walk with Ben. Where we leave Ben behind is what he says there at the end. Imitate Jesus. Hmm? Yes and no. Jesus says, follow me, do as I do. You, you can't imitate him until you first let him do something for you. Until you first grasp and believe what he's accomplished for you. Apart from that, look, he didn't come to his table and say, ah, oh, good, let's talk about how to make you better. He said, first, let's talk about what I need to do for you. You'll have no part with me, Peter. I have to wash you. I have to bleed and die for you before you can ever think about wanting to imitate me. 
Let me show you that deep contrast in one last moment from the tree of life. There are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. Accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. what she's saying it's the way it's being said capturing simple moments that seem just totally mundane but the way it's captured there it's it's sacred and the music underneath lovely beautiful if you hear me standing up here saying you need to be more loving joyous peace and patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentle something if that's all you're hearing you've missed it this is what i'm saying in your study of Jesus, my desire for you, and I think the Lord's desire for you, is not simply to study him to master the concepts that he's actually embodying or speaking. It is to see Jesus display the very fruit of the Spirit in himself and asking to see that as beautiful. When you see it as beautiful as is depicted there in the way of grace and the way of nature contrasted, that's how the Spirit bears fruit in keeping with repentance because you see those things as beautiful. And I, I can't imagine a better way to imagine and begin to see those things again as beautiful than to come to this table. Because here he's not saying, I, I'm glad I gathered you here to you know, improve your life. I'm actually here to show you why I love you and how. And maybe somehow in the middle of that, we begin to see him as beautiful too. And then we begin to take that fruit as a blessing. Let's pray. Father, help us now to come to your table as uh, people that have empty hands and uh, who forget and where life and hope drain from us so easily. Would you help us now to see the fruit of the Spirit as, in fact, um, the glory that it was intended, but all of which rests upon us to find things in you that we find good.